Welcome to the Filmed Live Musicals Podcast, a podcast about stage musicals that have been legally filmed and publicly distributed. The Filmed Live Musicals website contains information on nearly 200 musicals that have been captured live. Check it out at filmedlivemusicals.com. And now, on with the show. Welcome to episode 13 of the Filmed Live Musicals Podcast. I'm your host, Louisa Lyons, and joining me today is Adam Lenton. Based in London, Adam is a director, producer, dramaturg, and musical theatre specialist. He was recently included in the Stage 100, a list recognizing theatre makers for their extraordinary achievements in 2020. He is the founder of Signal and Signal Online, programs for incubating new musical theatre, Make Your Own Musicals, which provides activity packs for children, and Theatrical Solutions, which offers affordable services for theatrical live streaming. Welcome, Adam. Hi there. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. When did you first fall in love with musical theatre? I think uh, the moment I could probably track it to was when I was about 15. I'm from London, so I'm very fortunate in that way. I had been to see musicals in the West End when I was a kid, but with my parents, but sort of like once a year to go and see the big West End musicals. So I had seen Les Mis and Miss Saigon and Joseph and his amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, uh, but I think the moment it first clicked was I went to see a student production of Company by Stephen Sondheim that my brother was musical directing. And I was like, this is so much more conceptual, I suppose, or and mature and reminded me of film in the way it was in sort of its kind of maturity and its structural audaciousness and I suppose uh, ambiguity. So I remember thinking, and I, I'd been a big film fan, a big video game fan as a kind of child through to teenager. And so yeah, company. And then I went to the Edinburgh Festival and I saw that there was a production of another Stephen Sondheim show called Merrily We Roll Along, <laughs> which was just a student production by Royal Holloway. And I, I went to go see that because I recognized the name Stephen Sondheim and I read in the fly that it went backwards. And at the time, I had just sort of fallen in love with the movie Memento, uh, the mm-hmm. Christopher Nolan movie that also goes backwards. So again, I was just thinking, God, like this form is so flexible and mature. So yeah, uh, I was about 15 or 16 then. Then I bought all of the Sundime CDs I could. <laughs> I remember listening to Sunday in the Park with George in the car as I was like learning to drive, uh, which is kind of an unusual choice for a 17-year-old. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Music and art that <laughs> turn here. Exactly. It's like red, 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 orange. Um, and then I, and then I, then I used to go to the the sadly missed CD shop, record shop in London called Dress Circle, and I used to pick up CDs from their kind of like new their new um, shelves most of which were kind of like ghost light or um, PS classics kind of musical theater imprints. And that's where I discovered Jason Robert Brown and Michael John Lacuser and Adam Gettle and, and the sort of Sondheim's descendants, Janine Tesori. And I think at that point I was, I was pretty hooked basically. I love that Sondheim was your gateway drug. Yeah. I mean, as, as I think he's a lot of people's just because I think he well, he he did something that I that I still aspire to do now, which is kind of disrupt received notions of what a musical should sound like or be about his musicals. They they all sounded like him, but 
they they all sounded so different from one another and they were just about such wildly different things and they were so formally audacious and and smart and emotive and because that's the other thing is like I really like smart things because I'm a big nerd and I really and I'm a really overly emotional person too so I, I like where the two things sort of intersect I think in England I'm I'm always seen as like a little bit of an oddity for how overly emotional I am which is <laughs> I've noticed that uh, uh, Americans tend to be sort of more forthright in, with their emotions than British people are sometimes allowed to be which I, I think is a reason why musicals are potentially undervalued in this country or have been but that's a longer longer thing <laughs> <laughs> when you were listening to cast recordings and CDs, were you also watching the productions? Sondheim particularly, a lot of his productions are available on film or VHS back in the day and now DVD. Was that something that you watched as well or you consumed? If I'm totally honest, not really. I don't know why. I don't know why. I think probably at the time because actually I remember there were American DVDs. I remember being able to get those kind of like Sondheim DVDs, they were like region one only. And at that point, um, Europe and UK is region two. And it was hard to get, it was hard to get American things. I remember, and I remember the imports were expensive and I didn't have a full region DVD player, like boring things like that. But no, I remember I read them and I got loads of cast recordings. And I also think to an extent there was this kind of I don't know about other people, but when I had once I've seen something, I I was less interested in directing it. Which isn't to say that that's the only reason to engage with theatre. Most of that time, I was just a fan. But as I became a student and started di- directing and thinking about putting shows on uh, at university, I I found it. I found that once I'd seen a good production of something, it kind of almost relieved me of ever wanting to do that myself mm. especially if it was really good <laughs> you know it's like I already saw I you know I I, I went to see the uh, you know I saw a lot of the musicals I had loved at the Mini Chocolate Factory in its kind of first era um so I saw Sunday in the Park with George uh, I saw Tick Tick Boom I saw so that was when I was probably about and 19. Merrily we roll along well, I worked on Merrily we roll along actually <laughs> I was associate director on that but yeah it's um so that was kind of a weird coming coming home um to that show but i um and once i saw that like amazing daniel evans jenna russell production sunday in the park with george i I was like i don't i don't need to see it again that was or do it again that was just so so extraordinary i I actually also always find that i find either seeing a production of a musical either makes me think a, a good production either makes me think great that's done now i don't need to think about that or or it makes me go, oh, I want to do that. Like, for example, it doesn't matter how many productions of Condide I see, I still want to do that show because it's so mad. I think there's a, <laughs> a thousand different ways of directing it. but And there there um, are a thousand different script versions too. So. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> you know, or chess or any of those kinds of musical or Pippin, any like those musicals that are so open to directors' interpretations. But, but yeah, no, mostly listening, reading, and just kind of like, I had this... I remember going to see the Drowsy Chaperone when I was in New York, when that was first on. And I remember thinking there's that thing about the man in the chair in that show where he says, you know, I've obsessed over this show my whole life and I've never even seen it. And I remember thinking that that was like me and Follies (laughs) because I had maybe, I've had all of the cast recordings, maybe nine. I ordered a tape of the, 
a, literally a cassette tape from eBay, which had like a bootleg of the 1970 production audio, like an audio bootleg. Yeah. I like obsessed over a lot of shows many, many years before I ever got to see them. Um, which I think is one of the great things about musicals is that they, because they're these like three dimensional things, which you can appreciate differently in a bunch of different ways, whether that's on screen, in person, on recording. And they all give you some piece of that puzzle. I love that about musicals because it it feels like, I mean, it feels like probably 90% of the musicals I have a great affection for I've never seen. And as strange as that is, I do think the form can kind of live there as well as on stage. Very interesting. So the impact of musicals being available through cast recordings, still they have very much a life and they're alive and are made accessible just by having the cast recording available. I think so. I mean, I think the the act of listening to them is slightly different to listening to other music because you kind of have to, you know, I, I wasn't just listening to songs. I was like sort of finding a show and obsessing over it from beginning to end and listening to it on loop and then reading either the libretto or like reading reviews or fragments of synopsis, see synopses or um, <laughs> sort of... Um, and building up a picture of a sort of collage of how it how it worked. But I, I guess this is why I'm, you know, in my recent life, I'm a proponent of other forms of theatre other than just being in in a theatre because I those pieces, you know, there are pieces I've never seen, as I said, you know, um, that are just as vivid to me as ones I um, have. And in some ways, if you spend years obsessing over a piece, seeing one production of it, especially because I'm a director, not not that I don't love seeing the productions of other people's work, because I, I I nearly always do. But sometimes if you've obsessed over a piece for, for like 10 years, seeing it can sometimes feel like not, you know, different to all the possibilities living in your head. Yes, I, I've definitely experienced that feeling before. And it's it's not that it's disappointing, but it's it just doesn't live up to what has been constructed in your head. Mm. So I'm curious when you first became aware of the potential of filming a show and streaming it. It's really interesting because I look back on my, you know, I've been doing this 12 years now. I, my first my first show was 2008, which was Ordinary Days by Adam Guan, which was my first show I directed professionally and. And then I did Little Fish by Michael John Lacusa, both UK premieres, both which I'm extremely proud of, and nothing of them exists. Nothing. Like, I think we might have single camera, like, archive shots, but no kind of trailers, no sort of multicam films, nothing that you could endure watching not terrible sound like you couldn't you couldn't sit and watch them and 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 get do anything except get get like the basic idea of what they were and um me of today that just seems so weird that I kind of let them evaporate but I guess I do also have this very as we all probably do in theatre do have this sense that the actual physical production of a show is meant to be of its time and is meant to be ephemeral and is meant to be kind of enjoyed in the instances that it's created and and looking back on it is is slightly strange um and I guess me of then I probably thought you know, there's a million to one chance that these shows might get cast recordings and that's the way they live on. But 
filming just seemed impossible. It seemed expensive. It seemed like it would take incredibly high budget. Cameras were really expensive, even, you know, by, by, by factors of 10, I think, compared to what they cost now. It just seemed impossible. Well, it's really extraordinary in the those 12 years, you know, smartphones have come about and YouTube has come about and streaming has become a thing. And it just, it didn't really exist. You know, it was only the big companies like Antique National Theatre or the Met that could afford the technology to be filming. Or thought they could. I wonder now if maybe, I wonder now if maybe that idea of a barrier was a somewhat, somewhat unreal. But I also think that you're putting so much energy, you're putting so much energy into the making of the show and selling the tickets and getting audience in the room and making people care. And often I do slightly strange shows or not even strange, just shows that you haven't heard of yet because I'm sort of addicted to, to making things that people don't know about yet. And, and, that, that those are hard work in every department to make happen, whether it's because the sh- show is still finding itself or selling tickets is harder. And um, I don't know, you don't think a lot about archiving them or capturing them for, for whatever after, after effect, you know, and there weren't platforms to sell and there weren't the, my first productions of anything that was filmed with multicam were 2018. And those were literally filmed so that they could be sent to people to maybe think about a future life. They weren't. That intended. was like wasted. Wasted and um, the the rink, which should obviously for rights reasons, no one will no one will ever see. But a multi cam of that was done with the idea of of it being able to be sent to you know venues and and people so that um, maybe it could have a future life. Um, but the idea of it being preserved for audiences, even in twenty eighteen, you know, wasted was not captured for that purpose. It just happened that we looked at it and thought that's potentially good enough at this time to kind of release uh, to, to, to me my first introduction to like filming stuff was when I started signal the the, the concert series that I um, that I curate which started in 2017 and for me I wasn't referencing NT live or met live or, or like the idea of audiences watching or selling shows I was referencing YouTube capture of of 54 below and Joe's pub and you know, people like newmusicaltheatre.com in America and, and artists like Kerrigan Allowed and Malcolm Pasek and Paul and Joe Iconis from the kind of early mid to late 2000s. Um, I was on YouTube a lot during that time and I was mostly watching single camera videos of single songs from cabarets and, yeah. and thinking, what a great song and, you know, what a great artist. And then I was looking at their MySpace pages or, you know, and listening to their early attempts with, you know, someone like Adam Gwan of, of like podcasting. Adam Gwan had a podcast in 2007 of his songs, which I, you know, before podcasts were, were in any way mainstream. Yeah. Um, and so for me, when I started Signal, it was like, I wanted there to be an archive or like a capture of all of these songs so that people in other places could sort of dig through them like I had dug through them, whether or not they ever would. I remember thinking, you know, we put them up, every song that's ever been performed at Signal is is, is on YouTube. And I remember, you know, 50 views, 100 views, no, nothing much. But I just remember thinking we'd ha- we had to keep doing it because in five years, in 10 years, in 15 years, like when these writers 
paths are more fully formed, you'd be able to sort of look back in the way that I was able to look back. Um, you know, I remember when Smash was on and there were all of these writers in season two of Smash, the like Pasek and Paul and, and Jerry Connors, who I, yeah, I'd seen their songs on, on YouTube 10 years earlier. And I, I just remember thinking that was cool and would mean something at some point, which to be honest is a lot of my, a lot of my thinking is always like, I don't know what this means today, but like it might mean something someday. So in, even with Signal, I still honestly never thought of really about live streaming shows. Um, it was only when this year's, this, this terrible 2020 started and, and the pandemic started in March that we decided to do Signal online. And because Signal had always been filmed and captured, it was like, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll figure out how to do that. And when figuring out how to do that, we suddenly realized that the best way of doing it was using live streaming software and um, did weeks and weeks, you know, 10 or more of these digital concerts in a way, just, just more to experiment and to like give writers and, and me something to do. Mm-hmm. And as that was happening, I suddenly realized, you know what, this would be a lot easier if, if small group of us were in a room than if we're all in separate rooms. And it would be even better if, if instead of having to use webcams, we could use actual cameras. And it would be even better if, um, you know, rather than each person having to do their own individual sound setup in their own room, their own bedroom, like we could go back to having one sound desk and, and, and that stuff. And it suddenly came from, from having nothing in March, April, May, June, it suddenly was like, okay, once, once it gets slightly safer or slightly less lockdown and, and, and a few of us can gather in a room, how can we skill up or level up this online thing? Um, and, and that's what led to the idea of doing digital shows. It didn't, it didn't ever really come from have a, a, a history of having filmed my shows, I suppose. Mm. Were you, as associate producer, associate director, sorry, on Merrily We Roll Along, were you involved in the filming of that at all? Uh, yeah, actually I was. I, 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 um, I helped call, not call the cameras as it were. They, they filmed three performances of uh, Merrily Roll Along for digital, the- digital theatre. They had eight cameras for each performance. And I was in the sort of control room, basically on cans, telling people, who were filming where the next essential moments were going to come. So I knew that on the, the person on the, the, you know, the man on the left side of the stage is going to sing the next solo line. And then the man next to the piano is going to sing the next solo line. And the woman by that door is going to sing the next solo line. And because of the speed of, of a show like Merrily, I was there going, telling people how, so that they could capture the things that needed to be captured. Um, so yeah, that was eight pan tilt zoom cameras that were hung in the lighting rig and people in a separate room with like joysticks and screens capturing that show. But it was just mad. It just so much equipment and so much technology. And I just remember thinking, this is a thing that happens for movies that get broadcast to cinemas, or this is a thing that happens for huge companies. This isn't something like a freelancer, like a with with producing fringe shows for 50 and 100 seats theatres could ever aspire to so 
as I said, it didn't, it didn't come because I thought about filming and d- releasing work. It came because we started streaming, then we did live streaming of concerts, then we thought it would be good to be in a room. And then suddenly it was like, well, now we've done this, maybe we could do a production. So it came from like a different uh, pathway, I suppose, which then yeah. looped back around and suddenly in some ways now resembles the process you would do to film a musical. But um, I think one of the ways I'm really evangelical about liveness is because of the path that got me here. Um, I love film and I'm, I'm really wary of, of theater being bad films or, you know, theater makers making low budget things that are poor quality. So I guess I'd never really, I I love watching films. Um, but I've never really been interested in making films, I suppose. So uh, it's it's kind of a surprise that I'm here, but as I said, it, it, it feels like we are finding and we're struggling and I know not everyone on either side agrees, but I think we're finding a new form that exists somewhere between theater and film. Um, I don't think it's one or the other and I think has cinematic elements and theatrical elements and loads of other actually loads of other kind of durational or long form or elements but yeah. So this is my favorite question of all time. (laughs) What should we call it? What is this thing that is in between? It's not quite live theater and it's not a film so what what is it? I mean I, I think I'm not to cop out I think I'm still on my way to to figuring that out I maybe I'll figure out in my waffle now I I I really care about labels because I think they help clarify things and so so early on in you know at the end of last year I remember I was saying how I think we should try and find a boundary between the word live stream and the word stream just because I think even if a stream is at a certain time if you're streaming a pre-made film that's different from live streaming um i think that's important that that people understand the difference between streaming something that's been made and live and live streaming where you're making something live and broadcasting it at that very moment yeah i i I definitely want to know if something is a streamed film or a live streamed um a a a, what what is it a a streamed film and i want to know if it's made under show conditions or I want to know if it's made with separate shots and edits and I also want to know if something is made live so um if I were to call it something I would probably just call it live stream theater um but at the moment but um (laughs) yeah (laughs) I know it's a torturous question because I like you say we don't really have the word we have individual labels for it but I feel that the general public and even people within the industry don't yet know the difference between, for example, Hamilton being a capture of the show that was filmed like Merrily Roll Along over several performances and then it's edited together or something like the last five years, the the movie musical. Like there's a difference between them. One Mm. is filmed on stage with an audience and then one is filmed on set conditions and it's uh, filmed out of order and edited together. For me, I'm, you know, and again, I know there would be debate here. I think one of the key, uh, key things that makes theater theater is that you construct a show and as a director, you kind of construct a show so that it is repeatable and the way that you construct it. So it's repeatable is so that it can be, you know, hopefully in an ideal world done for an audience eight times a week 
um, that it will make have each one will be unique, but it will also sort of be um, the same kind of rule set for every single performance and it will run continuously. Mm -hmm. And um, I think as soon as you chop a piece of theater up, I think that's when it stops becoming film, uh, starts becoming film. And I think film used to be when it was first, when a camera was first invented, a camera was put in, you know, the back of a theater essentially, and was used to film unbroken theater. And it was when editing was invented that film became its own medium editing and juxtaposition and, and things being constructed non-linearly and different unity of time. So I think the fact that editing and take retaking is what turned theater into film. I think preserving unity of time and single takes and kind of like the constructed theatrical reality is what turns film back into theater i think which is why i really want to know if something is filmed in a single trouble is none of it's very easy to say but like it'd be very easy for people to just say filmed filmed in one take you know or captured captured in multiple takes and or live streamed in the present the, the, the term I always use for the stuff that I've been doing this past year is performed and streamed live because I think that mm. by saying those two things together the you get that the performance and the streaming are both concurrent but like yeah. people just want to sell tickets so people aren't particularly interested in doing what's most accurate they're interested in what will engage an audience to buy the ticket the most but i think in the long run I, I, I worry that that's a damaging tactic because i think we're like sort of confusing audiences as to what they're paying for and i don't think people should pay as much for a single performance that can be shown infinite amount of times as they are paying to actually literally receive the broadcast from a room where people are all doing their job that moment that is a more special and, a, and it takes more work and more effort and i don't think we should be conflating them but i also think until you've experienced a proper live stream the risk of it the 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 ephemeral nature of it i, I don't know if people understand why it's different than a film but um but I hope that the more of it people see, the more people might grow to understand. You know, it would be different getting to tune into tonight's performance of Hamilton than it would to just watch that one from two years ago um, or three years ago. Well, it was, yeah, it was ages ago, wasn't it? Um, that, that was captured. There's now. something amazing. <laughs> Five almost. Yeah, there's something, <laughs> there's something amazing about watching what is a cultural artifact. But I think the whole idea of film is that it exists as a cultural artifact from the moment that it is released. And we can go back and watch a film from the 90s or the 80s and the 70s, and it exists in tension with our current temporality. Whereas I think the idea of theatre is it always exists in both the moment of its creation and in the moment of its performance. So there's this kind of stacked temporality, which I think is what we find so engaging. Like a show was made 40 years, you know, Chorus Line was made 30 years ago, but we're also watching it tonight and the people on stage are experiencing the resonances of it tonight. And I also love the idea of watching different casts on film, you know, in the same way that I, I did always find myself quite frustrated that once one cast recording had been made, it was often very hard for a second or a third or a fifth cast recording to be made. Um, so the show almost got froze 
at the moment of its first production, um, which I don't think theatre does. You know, pe- pe- no. different casts, different days, different 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 things. So I think trying to preserve and as, some as the of saying that, goes, a musical is never finished; it's only rewritten. Absolutely, and you know, of my however many cast recordings of Follies, like you know, I had the original and then I had the London cast recording and I had the Paper Mill Playhouse recording and I had the 1985 concert recording and I had and each of them different and each of them, you know, and w- when we did the rink, um, there are two cast recordings. There's a London cast recording. There's a, um, the, there's the original Broadway cast recording. There are loads of other recordings of those songs from over the years. And, each new production of something, if it, you know, we were lucky to be given permission um, by by oh, the late Terence McNally, which is very sad to actually to actually create something out of past versions. And um, yeah, there is something amazing about that. That the theatre isn't just an artifact; it's um, it's uh, of this moment, of this very moment that we're living right now. And there's something about the interaction between those two things that that is endlessly fascinating. Couldn't agree more. So the cast recording of Shift Alt-Right was just released and it's now available on Spotify, Apple Music and TikTok with music and lyrics by Hilmi Jaiden. And it's an original digital musical performed uh, and streamed remotely. Um, For folks who missed it, can you tell us more about that production? Yeah, I mean, it's... if I go too, too too deep into the weeds, you can just you can just cut this. But it was very, it was um, it was we had been doing S- Signal Online, which was um a live concert where we would go to different people's sort of living rooms and offices and writing rooms all over the country and the world, and they would sing songs. And the way that the show worked is we would use a live piece of live streaming software to collate sort of, I guess it was 15 to 20 different streams so that we could switch from, you know, room to room back and forth from me to the artist. And it was all live. Um, and we used sound routing. Uh, each person I spent an hour on zoom with each person who was taking part in it to set up their sound, their end to make sure that it was sort of the, the sound was good quality which is, took ages, but it was locked down. So we all had a bit of time. <laughs> and so we did these concerts and uh, Hilmi started writing, did a few of them and, and wrote songs for them from this idea he had for a musical called Shift All Right, um, which largely took place online. And he basically said, after he'd written the first song, he basically said that he was constructing it so that it could be done the same technology that he was witnessing that we were using to use um, to do a signal online concert bearing. So it was four performers, but they could all be in their own rooms. And the entire sort of mechanism of the show was, you know, Skype or message chats or, um, or telephone calls, you know, the way that we're communicating when we're separate from one another. So he literally saw the form of a digital live concert and wrote a show a content that was for that form, a content that necessitated that form, I suppose. Um, the idea being it's for performers. They can, they're all in separate rooms or locations and it can be performed live. 
Um, and he sent it to me and I just loved the idea of taking what had been a concert and wasn't without its complexity, but, you know, was song by song by song and thinking, could we sustain it for 45 minutes to an hour and do a full show? Um, I also really, I became really attached to the idea of making a new musical because I'm, I'm like constantly trying to make new musicals and getting theatres and producers and, and gatekeepers to engage with new, disruptive, strange work by writers they've never heard of is difficult and getting through the door of theatres is difficult. And I've been really obsessed with the idea of like, could we create new theatre without theatres, without a building, without a gatekeeper, without a producer saying yes. So when he was like, well, we can just stream it. It can just exist on the internet. It doesn't need a theater and it's designed for that. So, um, so that's what we did. Um, in the end, Max, who played the protagonist, Jay, he came to my flat. Um, there were four of us in total in my flat, um, obeying COVID safety. Me, Chris Chorney, who's a technical wizard who'd been helping me this whole time he was on sound i was operating the cameras and it had our assistant producer tanya and so that became kind of mission control it's a bit like max being with me at a signal online concert and then the other three performers all came in remotely um yeah. only max sings which made it easier because duets are tough in terms of with latency in fact they're impossible um to do them we, we've we've managed to do some live live online duets but currently the only way of doing them is with neither um participant being able to hear the other live they hear a click track and we hear them together but it's sort of it's not the same as hearing another singer um and sort of being able to modify as you go so yeah and so we we, we did it at the end of october we did four live performances of it unbelievably it didn't we didn't have any technical issues um and it was lovely because all four shows are different and so yeah the, the hope is we'll be able to do some encore performances of that this year which will be which will be us broad us streaming uh a show that has already been uh live streamed so they won't be live but um for people mm-hmm. that missed it it will be an opportunity to to see what we made um but it's exciting to have a cast recording out because as i said my entry gateway drug to all of this was was cast recording so mm-hmm. to made even a small one even a four track one feels like a bit of a significant milestone which is lovely and given the current world events the subject matter is very timely this idea of people being radicalized by being online yeah i mean thanks for mentioning that i mean yeah it's 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 definitely hilmi brilliantly subverts the idea that a musical has to be about a hero and um, makes it about an anti-hero who we maybe start out sympathizing with, then maybe empathize with, and then probably despise by the end. Um, and, you know, in the same way that television gave us people like Walter White or Tony Soprano, like, I think the idea that everyone has to be lovable in a musical is, is always worth challenging. Um, but yeah, it's set in 2015, um, or 2014. Um, I can't specifically remember, but essentially it's just about, you know, when the alt-right and them, you know, 4chan and Reddit and Pepe the Frog and the kind of awful, awful beginnings of that movement. But in a weird way, of course, by speaking about then, it feels unfortunately like it's only 
only got more resonant. Um, and it just looks, I suppose, how if we're not careful about people who are lonely or disaffected or, or experiencing um experiencing trauma um if we're not careful with them they they can go down down a, a wrong path and um yeah there are numerous moments in shift right where we hope that jay might not go go down that path but i think the piece mm. the, you, you know the, the piece has, has certain ambiguities to it but um yeah it asks us what 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 it takes to radicalize um and I love the fact that the show takes place within an hour. It's a single unity of time. Um, and we, we streamed it live. So we had a clock in the back of the show um, that was set for the exact time that the show st- started within the show. And the, the clock actually ticked. Um, just so if anyone wants to go back and check that there was no editing, um, that they, wow. they, they, they can. <laughs> Oh, that's cool. I love that. That's very difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's uh well we just we just we just thought yeah and, and actually we with um about we're streaming a show this coming week called Public Domain uh hopefully all being well if if everything stays okay with uh with everyone. Um and yeah, we're thinking about how we can just show the audience today's newspaper as it were, you know, show them that mm. this is happening today. Yes. <laughs> Because I think there's something really exciting for an audience about being, you know, you walk into a theatre and you know it's happening now. Whereas when something's on a screen, you don't know the layers of artifice that are between you and what you're actually getting. So I'm also just interested in trying to show people, no, like, here's my watch. (laughs) Like, (laughs) here's today's newspaper, metaphorically speaking. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. Uh, The National Theatre did some studies a little while ago now that showed that audiences felt, even watching on a screen, they felt that they were part of the show and part experiencing it like uh, because they were watching a live broadcast, they felt that they were experiencing it as they would in person and watching it on a screen. I remember the, I think when National Theatre Live first started, I may be, I may be mixing some memories, but I, I want to say that one of the first shows was was Adrian Lester's Henry V, but I might be, I might be mixing my shows up, but that was certainly around that time. Whatever show it was, there was a review of it in the, in the, in the newspaper, which claimed, which, which commented on the fact that the audience were like a cinema audience. They had popcorn and they were munching their popcorn and they were slurping their drinks and they were, you know, watching trailers and it very much felt like a film. And as soon as the sh- countdown started and they saw the onstage you know, they saw the in-house audience and they realized that it was live. The the reviewer noticed that everyone just put down their popcorn. They sort of put down their drinks. They they felt that like to consume or to like that there was something going on that they shouldn't be interrupting, even though they were in a cinema in a completely different location. And I, 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 again, I, I, I subscribe to that belief that that there is something different about it if if audiences buy into it and I think the way that they are more likely to buy into it is if if it's kind of given to them accurately and 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 sort of uh, I'm never you know I'm very passionate about things I'm 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 rarely actually stop attempting to start an argument um I'm I'm more likely to be wanting to start a debate but I 
I, I, you know, I, I just find it disingenuous when people say, you know, we're live streaming, we're live streaming this show and they filmed it a year ago or they filmed it even a month ago. Like it's, it's different. It is different. Mm. And I think we should just be labeling them differently. And I, and I, and I think the more people that, that spend time with each, um, I think they might be surprised by how, how different it feels. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned public domain, which will be uh, airing next week. I'm very excited. Mm, uh, Fabulous Fox Sister, Catch Me and The Limit uh, were also all stage musicals that were filmed and streamed live without an audience. What do you think having an audience present in the room would have changed about those performances or those streams? If you think it would have changed it at all? I think, no, I mean, it, it obviously, it obviously would have, it obviously would have changed to yeah catch me in the limit were two new musicals that we did at central school of speech and drama they were filmed and then edited um and my old course just a, a fun yeah <laughs> great great course and i had such a lovely time despite it being such a weird year i think we were meant to be doing merrily we roll along um oh wow with that, with that whole year but um when we realized we had to do in bubbles of six, we, I suggested new musicals and they went for it. So again, it was a weird thing that probably would never have happened in an, in an, in an ordinary year, like a silver lining. Um, okay. but it, um, it's weird. I've got to, I think it's nice to have, have an audience. It's nice for the action on stage to have that feedback, that kind of, even if that feedback isn't, laughter or applause but just that 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 atmosphere in a room being able to see people's faces being able to see people's postures being able to hear the difference between when people stop breathing you know and that those that sort of silence being able to hear gasps or or see see the expressions of people's faces it does create like a feedback loop i think between the performance and um the audience in person and it and it does create an our sort of alchemy which i know that performers miss mm. on the other hand i do I, I love i love the idea of hybridization where there is an in-person audience and it's live streamed um which i really hope will be a part of my practice going forward anyway i can't see there'll be anything i do going forward that isn't live streamed um you know, even if it's not I live streamed every day, if we get back to an eight show schedule for something I'm directing, I can't imagine that we wouldn't live stream it at least twice a week. Yeah. But I suppose the only thing I would be wary of and I'm thoughtful about is trying to not create a hierarchical experience where it feels like you're watching an audience in person have a better time that, or, or a more intimate time and you're removed in some way. So the only thing I sometimes think when I watch films of things where there's a live audience an in-person audience, I should say, is um, I can sometimes see them laughing or feeling it in certain shots. And I feel somewhat excluded from that being at home. And when there's a, a live stream and there is no in-person audience, I do feel like there is a democracy to that, which is everyone is having the exact same experience. Um, so... Um, but in the end, I think it's maybe it's just about trying to find a, a balance which isn't better or worse. It's just it's just two different things. I, the metaphor I keep going back to, which I you know inevitably read about somewhere, which is 
the difference between lives uh, being in a football stadium to watch a match versus being watching it at home on, on, on TV, on live TV and thinking I've got quite poor eyesight. So I love being, I love watching football games in a stadium, but you've got a fixed view. You sometimes can't see everything. You haven't got a commentary. So you don't exactly always know everything that's happening at every moment. And there's atmosphere and there's like an in-person buzz to it. But one of the great things about watching it from home is you get to see close-up cameras, you get to hear commentary, you get to you get to have editing, so you get to see different views of different things that suit different moments, and you get a different type of authorship to to that. So I think it gives as much as it takes. I, I absolutely, I fabulous Vox sister. Two of our cameras were based on the view that you would get from a seat in the Southwark Playhouse Auditorium. And I think you were, there was a wide shot, which you wouldn't get in any seat because no one's got a wide <laughs> widescreen lens. You wouldn't be able to cap, capture all of that. But there were two camera views, the left and right camera view, which basically felt like you were sitting in the auditorium and looking at the stage. Mm. But we spent probably 40% of the show on a close-up that no audience member would ever have that felt more cinematic. And a similar thing will be happening with public domain. We'll be wanting to have cameras that make you feel like you are in the theater and ones that make you feel like you are getting a extra privilege from being at home. And I think just trying to balance, trying to balance that so that everyone gets something, something of an advantage by being there. Like I think so in, in the past live streams were just a bad sound and a single camera at the back, which was a definite disadvantage from from not being in the room but i think just balance elevating that form and balancing it off against being there because i've got to watch so many things in in other countries during the past year i got to watch live performances from the public theater i i've got to watch live performances from the met i couldn't go to them on a normal day i've watched <laughs> live performances from australia um yeah. and people in those places have got to watch my shows i Shift or right streamed from my flat, and <laughs> afterwards I got texts from friends in countries all around the world chatting to me about it because they had just left the the theater, the theater, the virtual theater. Mm. There's something amazing about that, and that's you know I spent the first three months of COVID shielding because I was on treatment, and, and let's never forget that there are people who who this form of accessibility is going to be life-changing and give them access to things that they just couldn't have access to. My 94 year old grandmother got to see the fabulous Fox sister. Um, <laughs> and she hasn't seen a piece of mine in five years because just getting to the theater is too difficult. So yeah. it means a lot. And, and yeah. Yeah. The, the potential for opening up access to theater with streaming and captures uh, is so exciting. And I think the pandemic has shifted in the industry, certainly in the US, the possibilities of it and uh, the, like you said, the de democratization of it and that the fact that it exists. I talked to so many people who are like, oh, filming theater is a thing. How and why? And mm -hmm. it's that has definitely shifted in the past year. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's just, 
important to just keep on interrogating it as an industry, as practitioners, and also show by show. Because I would say, especially with Shift or Riot, Fabulous Fox Sister, Public Domain, we knew going in that we were making them without an in-person audience. And each of them in its own way has been, you know, the, the process of making them and writing them and presenting them has been interrogated as we've gone along. Like we, we haven't thought, we've thought about cameras from moment one and editing and kind of like the way lenses and, and views and framing from almost the moment that we've decided to do them. And I think in the past, as I, you know, looping back to the beginning, but like in the past, you'd put on the show and you would only think about the theatre and the room and the audience in the room. And if it were ever filmed, that would just be someone turning up for a day, capturing it, capturing what they captured and and leaving. Um, and I, it's very different. It's very different being able to kind of steer the, like aim the experiences so that they meet in the middle going, okay, this is what the in-person experience is like, and this is what the digital experience is like, and and trying to make them meet in the middle rather than just go, it's an in-person experience with a bit of filming on the side, or it's a film with a bit of in-person on the side. Like, I think more and more we're, more and more we're I think, going to be able to, to balance them. And let's be honest, like, NT Live is, has, and Met Live are amazing as of other things, but those are the two I've experienced most of in the last decade. And I think the thing is just, it felt unaffordable, but, um, and impossible to learn. And, you know, I don't even say how little we've spent on, on kit and, and technology and skilling up on, but it's, you know, I imagine it's, conservatively speaking probably a thousandth of what it takes to film one nt live (laughs) maybe even ten thousandth so (laughs) i think the idea that you need all of that that it isn't open to being democratized is is a is a foolish misconception of which i have been subject to i really just thought i'll never do that it'd be too expensive i'll never manage it you know i'm as terrible as this year has been, I'm grateful for the, the, being forced into realizing how essential this can be and how manageable it can be. I I didn't know that any of this was affordable, and um, and I'm and I wouldn't have done any of this if it weren't have been for this strange year, uh, mm. this impossible year. And I have to take this as a silver lining that it's it's um, that it's shown that technology and I, 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 when I was 15, I was also playing online video games and spending time building, you know, taking components out of my family computer and breaking it and, and learning, you know, putting new graphics cards into things and, um, playing with all sorts of software to try and optimize online gaming. And it's so weird that I the skills I had when I was 15, I'm now reusing 20 years later for the first mm-hmm. time in this pandemic to go, Oh, that's how we'll, okay. That's how we'll, uh, not that we use it anymore, but in, you know, in, in April of 2020, we were using Soundflower to, to root sound. <laughs> and I just, the last time I remember hearing Soundflower was, yeah, probably in 2002. So, so it's just the, <laughs> the idea of just, just, just coming back to 
past past obsessions and kind of integrating them has been satisfying, I suppose. Yeah, that's all, all the skills. Nothing learned is ever wasted. No, no. I, I know we're running short on time, but I I would love to ask, can you speak to the union rules in the UK for streaming, how that has helped or hindered in being able to put content online? Yeah, I um, I do know I was in a conversation with, with some American producers at one point and I despite having wanted to wanting to live and make work in America and New York my whole life um well my whole adult life it was the I said to them oh man this this conversation is the first time I'm really glad I live in the UK just because um because there are more options with regards to streaming and filming and recording work in the UK it seems to me I'm not an expert on it by any means but it but it does seem it does seem that um there is more flexibility within actor contracts and there's more flexibility within theater contracts um to be able to record and stream work uh in a way that makes it sort of affordable um and possible actually you know I and I think I've I've heard people in America say that you know their their hands are tied with regards to being able to get work recorded or streamed or get people together and, and charge money for it and start sort of making it financially possible or do it while there are still productions in person productions planned or and and that does seem a shame but at the same time any new medium is liable to be. Um, used to rip people off and and write people out you know mm-hmm. and, and um i think sometimes rushing too quickly can can mean that yeah contracts are badly written or that as i say people are forgotten i've heard stories now of big productions going online in the uk and people who helped make them being sort of forgotten in the royalties or or, or not even spoken to and that stuff's really tough to hear but i think I think all forms change and evolve. And I, I think looking at theatre, I also think looking at film theatre with the same contracts as we look at for film or the same rights bundles as we look at for film seems problematic to me because they are different mm-hmm. forms. I remember hearing that someone wanted to film a stage production and distribute it and they couldn't because the film rights were already acquired. And thinking, I don't think a theatre filming their stage production of something is in any way competing with with something that's got film rights sold um and just trying to find a way of doing that but i just hope that i just hope that as i said people reevaluate and rethink constantly and try and be pragmatic and leave leave room and flexibility for new approaches because as i said where i am now from a year ago is unimaginable in terms of the approaches that i'm involved Mm -hmm. in and like goodness knows what we'll be in a year like a, a <laughs> new software and and new ways of capturing and new ways of, of of working with artists in different locations and all i would say is i've been doing new work that's very small in the grand scheme of things and i always you know try and be as transparent and as upfront and as honest as i can with everybody i'm i don't doubt I'm trying to sl- like slander myself. I don't doubt that 
I've made mistakes or there've been bumps in the road in terms of that transparency, but, but all you can do is just keep, keep the dialogue open and keep evolving. And, and, you know, if, if someone gets in touch with me and says, actually, I think we should be, we, we should be prioritizing this or trying to do this better then I'll always try. Um, I think in the long run for me, the, op- I don't think that digital theater cannibalizes real theater. Uh, in-person theatre, I shouldn't call it real theatre. You know, who am I? Uh, I don't think. <laughs> I, I don't think. I don't. What have we just been talking about? Yeah, for the I, last know, hour? <laughs> I know. You know, old habits die hard. I don't. Think, I don't think digital theatre sh- will cannibalise in-person live theatre. In fact, I think it will enhance it. I think the amount of people queuing up to see Hamilton will be enhanced by the Disney Plus release, not not cannibalised. I think. Um, I think. I'm very interested in making live digital theater not around forever. Um, even if it's archived forever, I, I like the idea that it is around for a certain period of time. Um, mm. And it then speaks as a, an artifact to the moment that it is being sent out and then, you know, re-sent out. But I also think we, we need to work hard to make sure that we can monetize it correctly because, um, it has a value and it has a cost to make it. And I think one of the risks is that we don't, you know, we early months of the pandemic, everyone on earth was dumping content for free. And mm. one of the things I've, I've, I've been outspoken about is that, you know, music journalism, we don't expect to pay for them anymore. And those things are going to are having to claw back that that sense of prestige and and money and i think we have to make sure that we don't let the genie entirely out of the bottle with regards to with regards to monetizing content so even though early on i did a lot of things for for donations rather than for tickets i i I doubt i will do that again Mm -hmm. because i think what we're making has an intrinsic value and got to got to sort of celebrate that value charge fairly and accessibly try and create options for those who can't afford it but but at the same time do that so that there's revenue coming in so that everyone could be paid fairly and yeah yeah absolutely could not agree more so to wrap up today i have i could keep talking to you for hours i have like 10 more questions in my just that i like you know wrote before i we were chatting and now I have 20 more. So I'd <laughs> love to keep chatting, but can't Absolutely. talk all day. Um, so I have some quick questions. You don't need sure. to think about them too deeply. Whatever comes to mind and there are no wrong answers. Okay. So what is your favorite musical? Probably something Park with George, but uh, or the band's visit, if I had to pick. Mm. Where do you stand on bootlegs? Uh, broadly, I'm... I'm pro bootleg. Um, I think that I had a bootleg of Hamilton and I won't watch it again because it's now been superseded um, by a much higher quality way of watching the show. And I tend to believe, you know, when I had bootlegs of shows, I I only listened to them because there was no access to, to other things. So I think they're a great way of people building affiliation and, and, and enjoyment for a show. I understand that at the same time that they are a type of theft, but I think hopefully it should just it, it builds fandom and hopefully encourages people to to create legitimate pathways to watch and share that material further down the line. Absolutely. What do you wish had been filmed? Um, of my work, I, I, I wish uh, my production of Songs for a New World had been filmed uh, with um, 
Cynthia Erivo, Jenna Russell, uh, Dean John Wilson, and Damien Humbley. Um, it was, yes. yeah, I was pretty proud of that. And it was, you, you know, um, uh, I think a, sh- a shame that that doesn't exist on film. Mm. And they were extraordinary. Maybe there is a bootleg floating around. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. But, it, you know, I wish I could go back and film it with seven cameras. But, you know. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, what would you like to see filmed in the future? Oh, um, I maybe a bit of a broad, broad answer, but I, I want at least one streamed performance per week of every show on the West End on Broadway. I don't think it has to be all eight shows, but I think wouldn't it be cool if like every Tuesday night, every show on Broadway and in the West End were streamed and there were hybrid rigs in every one of them. So, um, yeah, more or less everything, but you know, I'll, I'll go back (laughs) and just say, if I could watch the band's visit musical every day, um, I would, I'd be a lot happier. So the band's visit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so public domain will be live streamed from Southwark Playhouse on January 15th and 16th and tickets are available at Southwark Playhouse. The link for that will be in the show notes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, where can we find you online, Adam? My personal, uh, account is at Adam Lenson on Twitter and uh, Instagram and Facebook and, and my producing uh, accounts are at ALP musicals. Um, they're both just me, but <laughs> broadly speaking, one of, them is, one of them is company stuff and the other is me stuff. Yeah, my personal account, it tends to have lots of opinions about things, which I'm, I'm trying to make sure that people understand are like n- not not meant to be mean but are just me trying to put forward my 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 opinions but but yeah you'll definitely you'll definitely get some opinions if you follow me on twitter (laughs) about musicals and and live streaming and digital theater and all sorts of things um oh and it's also just worth saying i have a book coming out uh at the end of this year which i think we've agreed is going to be called breaking into song why you shouldn't hate musicals working title but um there'll be some stuff about digital theater in there but lots lots about musicals wonderful very much looking forward to that yeah well it's really really fun so as you said we could probably talk three hours and end. yes um, (laughs) no thank you so much for your time it's been really great to chat filmed live musicals is a labor of love and we'd like to thank everyone who makes it possible Thank you to our patrons, Josh Brandon, Mercedes Esteban, Rachel Esteban, David Negrin, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Al Monaco, David and Catherine Rabinowitz, and Beck Twist for your support. If you'd like to support Filmed Live Musicals, please like and review on your podcast app. Find us on Twitter at Musicals on Screen and on Facebook at Filmed Live Musicals. If you'd like to support the site financially, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash musicals on screen. No matter what level you are able to pledge, you receive early access to written content and early access to this very podcast. Visit www.filmlivemusicals.com to learn more. Thanks for listening.